This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Valerie Miles is a publisher, writer, translator, and the co-founder of Granta en Español. She's a lover of Spanish and Latin American literature, and she's also an advocate for their translation in the English-speaking world. At the same time, she brings the work of American and British authors to Spain and Latin America. Her newest works are the translation of Rafael Chirbis's Cremation and the anthology of Spanish-language fiction, a thousand forests in one acorn. While Valerie lives in Barcelona, our conversation took place in person at Books and Books. My guest on The Literary Life is Valerie Miles. Uh, Valerie, welcome. It's great to see you again here in Miami. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. It's been a number of years, I know, but it's, uh, it's great to have you back. And we're doing it live in the store. Yes. Imagine that. Yes, it's wonderful being here, being surrounded by all these books. Wonderful, beautiful books, actually, here. We're in the, this room with all of the large format, beautiful coffee table yeah, books. Yeah, this is one of our art book rooms. Yeah, so, um, gorgeous. Those of you who are out there who have not visited Books and Books, when you come, please come and look at all the art books that you can see here. But, but Valerie, I know, has just gotten off a plane uh, recently, and you were in Guadalajara, right? Yes, I was. Talk and a little bit about the Guadalajara Book Festival. Well, it's uh, the largest in the Spanish language um, of its kind. And it is a celebration, a huge celebration. Writers come from all over the Spanish-speaking world, all, all over the world also. Um, and uh, publishers and translators and book lovers and, you know, a lot of local people um, who just are readers and come to kind of experience, you know, being in, being immersed in this literary world. And it's always a lot of fun. Um, and at the same time, it's, there's always, you always take something away from the experience of Guadalajara. Um, I've been going to the book fair for many years. I was actually a jury. I was a, on the jury for their prize a couple of years. And um, it's kind of one of those highlights of the year for me and for many people in the Spanish-speaking world. I think the, you know, I was there once for one of the festivals. And the thing that always struck me, well, the thing that struck me so uh, uh, profoundly was how at night, after the trade show is over, you have families, thousands of people coming to experience the book festival as well. Yes, that's right. Um, a ho whole families. I mean, often people, like families will wait till the book fair um, to go and kind of fill up for the year and do their, you know, they come from all, all over um, uh, to, to come and spend the time at the fair, be able to get their books signed, 
Um, also, there's they do a lot of entertainment in the evening with um, music and dance. So there's a lot of kind of, kind of folklore. Um, so so the families, it's it's they enjoy the time there um, with with each other. No, it's a real celebration. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable actually. And not only that, but it's right near some of the best tequila <laughs> in the world. Very right? key. <laughs> Although I have to say, it seems as though you know. Tequila is my poison, if I may be frank. Um, I love tequila. So for me, it's always wonderful to go. I, I always get to try new new brands of tequila as they're coming out. But this year, it seems that mezcal is taking over. Everyone is drinking right. mezcal. Yeah. Oh, what are the brands that you can recommend? Anything that we don't know about here yet? Uh, well, you know, I'm... I have to say, I am rather traditional in my my tequila brands, even though I am trying new ones. Um, but I like your old Herradura Blanco, not even Reposado. I like Herradura Blanco. That's kind of my my favorite. But I have to say, Don Julio, El Tesoro de Don Julio, is not bad at all either. And uh, one of my friends swears by a mezcal called El Alacran. <laughs> so you heard it here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See, the literary life, we give you everything. There that was is... another one called Agua Maldita that was also very good. So, I've written all of those down. And I'll <laughs> be going to my local, my local liquor store in the morning and seeing if we can find them. But it's really, I mean, you wear so many different hats that my, you know, you're a writer, you're a translator, you're, a, you're an author, you're a publisher. You do so many different, different things. Uh, and mostly you're a curator as well, you know, with your work, Granta and Español, mm -hmm. you know, which you're the editor of, and right. I think the founder, one of the co-founders mm -hmm. of it as well. So, you know, it, it really, you know, having you sitting next to me coming from Guadalajara, and we're in Miami where Spanish language books and Spanish language readers are, you know, are a plenty. My question for you is, what is the, the state of Spanish language publishing and where are we now uh, mm -hmm. in that world? There's a lot going on. I think it's a really exciting and very interesting time um, for Spanish language literature in general and also publishing because, um, you know, traditionally uh, Spanish language publishing has uh, had kind of some mid-sized independence very, very um, prestigious mid mid-sized independents, and and then the larger groups. And much of the publishing has been always kind of located in Spain, you know, and largely in Barcelona. Um, Madrid has a lot of the textbook publishing, um, and Barcelona more of the trade publishing. But there's kind of been an explosion <laughs> in the past couple of years of a a very rich uh, strata of independent, smaller independent publishers coming up, which has kind of also opened the possibility for writers from a lot of places that perhaps before it was harder for them to move their way into publishing, you know, you kind of have to have the right agent, you have to have the right friends, you have, you know, live in the, in the capitals, but that's not happening anymore. Are these publishers in small presses in different countries or are they in Spain? Yes, in different countries. Now, all over Latin America all over um, and all over Spain, these uh, independent publishers are coming up and uh, giving kind of a, a, a now a playing field for a lot of writers to emerge um, outside of 
what were kind of the traditional areas or like in Argentina, you don't have to come from Buenos Aires anymore to be able to be published. And in Colombia, you don't have to come from Bogota anymore. You can come from Medellin. You can come from small towns. And um, so th there's something opening up and moving that's very interesting. So as a curator, what is the mission of Grant en Español? Well, we have a, kind of a three-part mission that we we uh, launched Granton Español in 2003. Um, it came by way of actually Richard Ford was the person who suggested that we uh, start. He he had told us that uh, um, that Granta had during the 80s been publishing a lot of Spanish writers, you know, and he was right. There, Vargas Llosa, uh, Garcia Marquez. Uh, Ibar Bengoitia, Sergio Ramirez, many of those writers were publishing in Granta. Um, but w with the change of editors, you know, they kind of lost a little bit their, their contacts and their people in the Spanish language world, and they were looking for a way to kind of renew that. So he put me in touch with Ray Hederman, who was, you know, because at that time Granta was part of New York Review of Books. And, uh, So we proposed <laughs> launching a, a Spanish granta uh, with our Aurelio Major, who is uh, who was, had worked for many years with Octavio Paz and Vuelta in his uh, publishing house and his magazine. So Aurelio had all of that experience, and I had kind of the cross, you know, the American, English, Spanish, uh, you know, that I could kind of work that way. So what we wanted to do was bring more Spanish writing into English and share what we were discovering in the Spanish language, but also open the transatlantic conversation between Spain and Latin America, because that had been kind of quiet for, for right. a while. And uh, I had been the editor in MFA, which was an Argentine imprint in Spain, and I saw how hard it was sometimes to get people interested in the Argentine writers that I was publishing in Spain. So I said, we need a platform. We need to put all everyone together and start reading each other. And uh, so that's how Granta in Spanish was born. So it represents all of the different kinds of Spanish exactly. language writing everywhere, yes. which is great. Yes, um, because Spanish is so rich and varied. You don't have many languages like that that have 20-some different variations. Right. I wanted to ask you about that because one of the things that English language Granta was so well known for was highlighting young writers, mm -hmm. right? You know, yeah. I'll know I'll get it wrong. Is it 20 <laughs> under 30 or 10 uh -huh. under 40 or whatever it, it might started be? as 20 under 35. And right. then they moved up to 40 with right. a couple of years. But yeah, no, and then, but then you did that in Espanol yes, as we well. Did. Yes. And you've just recently mm -hmm. come out with the second, um, the second grouping of young writers. Yes, that's right. What are some of the differences that you see in that? Yes, there, well, there are very large differences, actually. Um, interestingly, uh, the, in 2010, we did our first list. Uh, we chose 22 writers um, under 35. Uh, we were working with John Freeman. It was uh, a very exciting kind of moment to come out uh, with with this issue. Um, and luckily, many of the writers, you know, we had beginner's luck. So <laughs> many of the writers we chose um, have gone on to become writers that everyone is probably familiar with, like like Pola Oloy Sharak or Samantha Schweblin, who is, you know, a finalist for the Booker several times. I mean, writers who have really come into their own. So, um, so we kind of earned the 
the chance to do a second list. Um, and in the second list, uh, we put together a jury with um, Gabby Wood, for example, who's the director of the Booker Foundation, with um, Horacio Castellanos Moya, who's a, a Salvadoran writer he te who teaches in Iowa, in Iowa Writing Workshop, um, Rodrigo Fersan, who's Argentine, Chloe Arigis, who is Mexican, and who happened to win as we were deliberating the Penn Faulkner. <laughs> so, um, and then Aurelio, and of course I was um, kind of the chair. And uh, together we figured we would leave it at 20 this time. Um, and we kind of had fallen into that idea that you know, we're all telling ourselves, oh, this new generation, adult brains, they, you know, they don't read anymore. They don't know anything about tra tradition. And uh, so we kind of had fallen into that preconceived notion that we later found was absolutely false. We had a very hard time keeping it at 25. Very hard time. We all had to sacrifice writers that we, uh, we felt very strongly about. Um, and what we saw are the writers are... Like I said before, they're they're coming out of places that are are as yet somewhat unsung. Like which kinds of places? For example, the writer from Colombia, he he doesn't even come from Medellin. He comes from this tiny village in coastal Colombia um, that probably ten years ago, you know, didn't have a bookstore, didn't have any kind of infrastructure where somebody might even be able to consider themselves a writer, you know? Um, and he, his name is Jose Ardila, and uh, he is writing about, uh, you know, he's Afro-Colombian, uh, so he's writing about his community and s some of the issues um, in these, these small towns. We also found a writer from Equatorial Guinea, so we added Africa into the mix of continents with the Spanish language because it was, of course, you know, a, what, the, Spain's only colonial uh, country. And um, people forget that Spanish is the language that they speak there. Um, and we uh, were able to come into this whole group of writers from Equatorial Guinea who are just coming up. And it's very difficult because it is a place where there are very few bookstores and very few, not much of a, of a in infrastructure, right, for publishing. And so, which makes you think, how exciting is it that they, they write anyway? And how compelled are they by their art to be writing even though this situation might be difficult. And what's so interesting is that the Spanish that they speak is infused with a lot of kind of the, you know, native languages that are there. So it infuses into the Spanish uh, different melodies and different cadences. And what we're noticing in this issue of Granta, for example, is that many of the writers are doing that where 10 years ago they kind of... You, you almost had this feeling that they felt they needed to write in a more neutral kind of Spanish. These writers are, have no complexes about writing in local registers. So, so the, the music is extremely local. Absolutely. It, you know, the music of the language for each one of these writers. That's exactly right. So they're right. much more, the Spanish 
itself is more distinctive. That's absolutely right. Like they're allowing themselves right. to to do this and not in dialogue, but in the voice of their narrator, you know, where where it's just they're allowing themselves to write in the register that is it's theirs. It's their own voice. That's right. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're not having they're not overlaying something else exactly. into it. Some idea of like a high Spanish or something. No, they're and, and how has the subject matter changed? They are writing, you know, I thought one of the really interesting things is how often the figure of grandma, of the grandmother, showed up in many different ways. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. The grandmother as the figure of unconditional love, um, because there's a lot of stories also of, like, children in difficult circumstances, um kind of between bullying or um, families that are, you know, dysfunctional or falling apart or things like that. And there's this grandmother figure that's always there as kind of matriarch and um, center, which I thought was very interesting. Um, And they're also writing about, one of the interesting things is there's a kind of a trend towards discovering some of the original mythopoesis that comes from the, you know, original uh, original languages. Sure. Or, you know, Peru, for example, or Bolivia is a country with a large native with a, population. With its own mythologies. And exactly. And they're actually, where before maybe it wasn't considered something that you write, in, now they're writing in, in those, they're discovering and exploring those things and bringing them into the Spanish as well. And it's very exciting. It's really, it sounds fascinating. Very exciting. So do, do you think, for, for we who read English, do you think many of these writers will find their, their, their way into English as well? Are you finding yeah. that there's a market, an English language market for this as well? Yes, I do think so. Um, I think there are two things um, that are happening. First of all, I think people have a more open mind. You know, perhaps it's that nowadays nowadays the readers who still read really want to read real things you know um and these writers are bringing a breath of fresh air um because you know it's not the literature literature of exhaustion by any means this is literature of kind of new new explorations new areas that they're getting in there and they're discovering. So it's bringing us news of places perhaps we didn't realize were even that interesting and finding that there there's uh, absolutely fascinating stories to be told in these places. Um, one of the really interesting things, um, trends that we found in this group of 25 that we selected was in two, 2010 there were no Cuban writers. And in this one there are three. Mm. And you know you can say uh, the can you know the candidacies um, the largest number of, uh, of candidacies that we received for being selected for the list came from Spain. Uh, you know I, I'm inventing the numbers, but just to give a roundabout, say 90 writers from Spain you know sent in their uh, candidacies, mm, 40 from uh, Mexico, 30 from uh, Argentina. There were only eight from Cuba, and yet three made the list, mm. which means that there were few sent and many chosen. So that tells you, that gives you a, a sense that something's happening. Something really, mm-hmm. well, we see that in yeah. some of the democracy movements that mm-hmm. are happening there, that 
that young, and it's driven by young people. Yes. And they're finding their voice. Then. Exactly. Um, which, which brings me to your role as a translator. So with all of these new voices and in the new way that they're telling stories, um, what challenges does that pose to a translator? Mm -hmm. And are we finding young translators who are in tune with this new writing that they're now reading? Yes, um, that is a very good question because it is difficult. It does present difficulties. It means that the translator has to uh, find, you know, the, the, the find linguistic problem-solving skills <laughs> um, and have a good ear, you know, because translation is quite a bit about the ear. It's about um, being able to hear the melodies that are inherent in the language and somehow try and pull them through to the next language so that they can also be be heard somehow, no? Um, and uh, so we chose very carefully, you know, I paired very carefully the, the translators and the writers knowing, you know, I, I, some of them I already know their, their work in translation, so I could kind of tell, you know, I think this writer will work well with this writer, I think this one will work well with that writer. Some of them already had their translators, so we respected, of course, you know, the translators that were working with them. And then I wanted to, because since Granta works with emerging writers, we also feel very strongly about giving an, an opportunity to emerging translators. Of course. And uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm always trying looking for, you know, new translators who are coming up and and doing things. So, for example. Um, the uh, translator who worked with Jose Ardila, this Colombian writer who I mentioned before, um, she is a young translator um, from, uh, actually she's in Princeton now, and she specializes and she's working, her name is Lindsay, and her, she's working on um, Afro-Colombian and Afro-Latin mm. uh, writers. So it was a, a very good Perfect fit, mix. and she was working with somebody named Adrián Izquierdo. So they, the two of them worked together um, on José Ardila. And for me, that was a very, uh, very nice kind of, we found her, you know, she was somebody, somebody new for us. Um, and then we worked with also translators who have been around a while, like Natasha Wimmer. There's a young um, Argentine writer named Michelle Nieva, and I just... I said, this is so Natasha. Like, it's just, it's got to be Natasha. And she read it and absolutely adored the, uh, the story that he had written for us. So, so they worked on it together, too. I can tell in your voice the joy that you have <laughs> I do. in discovering and, yeah. and kind of curating all of this. Yeah, I enjoy it. I, I had the time of my life because I had the opportunity to bring together kind of my two passions, which is you know, the Spanish language world, and then the English language world, because I, I edited the Spanish, and then I edited the English, so right. it's kind of odd to have, like, the same person working on both issues as the editor, right? But I um, loved every minute of it. I loved working with the writers. It was a joy. And I loved working with the translators. It was another joy. So for me, and, in, in, you know, this this happened during the harsh dark pandemic <laughs> yeah like when you know in barcelona i don't know if you remember any of the I images do, i do you we were, were locked down locked down and we would go out every day at eight o'clock and right. clap and kind of say oh my gosh what's happening to the world you know and then i would go back in and i'd read one of these writers and say it's okay it's okay and, and, and you know i told myself the whole time the kids are fine <laughs> the kids are going to be okay oh, that's great <laughs> 
And you had a you had a window on the world is what yes. you had yes. through all of these writers. Mm-hmm. How does how does somebody how do you find the writers, and how do the writers find their way into Granta and Espanol? Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily this issue, mm-hmm. but in, in general. general. Yes, because of course we have um, regular issues. These are are kind of once in a decade right. issues, but in the re- regular issues, we um, you know, kind of, I I get a feeling for what is out there and what people are talking about, what is interesting, what I might want to, you know, focus on and then start reading. Um, each issue is very much uh, kind of a moment, a moment in time, like music of chance and a moment in time and all of the things that kind of come together around somebody's thinking about something, right? right. So I just start reading and asking and uh, people talk to me about other people. We have a website, which is granta.com.es. People write to me there, you know, send things in. So we, I just have a big pool that, you know, I also, um, Granta Spanish was the first, was the pilot of many different international issues. So we have issues in many different languages. And so I'm always in touch, you know, with those other uh those other editors, asking them also for their writers, people that they think they're interested. You know, I, I tell them, I'm working on this. Do you have something similar? So so we bring it in in, in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Well, it's such a high to be able to discover. You know, the sense of discovery must be yes. so great. Yeah, it know. is. It is. And, and you're here tonight at Books and Books because you're going to be talking about two books uh, of your own tonight, actually. And <laughs> uh-huh. let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, the one is one that you translated. It was a novel um, called Cremation. Would right. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the novel is by Rafael Chirves. Um, Rafa eh, is, I think, not only me, but in my opinion, along with a lot of other people, um, one of the great Spanish writers of the end of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century. Um, this novel is his eighth novel, um, he also has a number of essay collections, and, and it's kind of his his masterpiece novel. Um, Chirbes is was a very um, he was the type of writer that believed that if you uh, if you aren't bearing witness to your time, then you be, as a writer, then you're just another symptom of it, right? He believed he had studied history. So he really believed very strongly in the kind of the role of the person who is watching without blinders and kind of telling what's happening in our period of time. And uh, so this novel is set on the Spanish coast. um, And he's really talking about his generation the generation, he uh, fought against Franco and ended up in jail. Um, he was jailed for a time uh, fighting against Franco. And uh, so he believed that his generation had a very specific uh, responsibility before the period of time that they lived in. They had an opportunity to create a democracy and for that democracy to work because they had come from... You know, he, so in the transition, he felt that his generation was in some way called to a higher purpose, right? Um, and as time went by, he looked as he does in this kind of intransigent way without, without looking away 
and was not very happy with what he was seeing, particularly a lot of the things that were happening on with real estate um, speculation, how kind of this new class was coming up with the redistribution of wealth that happened after Franco. And instead of kind of creating this utopia, they were just enriching themselves the same as the people under Franco had done. Which so. was happening in a lot of countries around the world yes. at the very same time. Yes. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this novel is I think it doesn't, it takes Spain as an example, but it's really a very, very universal issue. No, clearly, just in reading what it's about, mm -hmm. it, yes. it could speak to so many of us. Very much. You know, about income, yeah. in, in, income uh, inequality and just exactly. all kinds of things. And real estate speculation yeah. and how what powers a lot of the real estate speculation right. is the cocaine trade and money laundering. And I mean, all of he looks at everything that not just, oh, people are buying expensive homes, but how is it that those homes are, you know, like kind of the whole underbelly of everything and the, the mobs, the uh, kind of human trafficking, the prostitution. He can just substitute Miami for every place <laughs> that he writes about there, I would imagine. Did you know him? Did you yes, know him I did. I actually well? had the chance to meet him. It was very funny because uh, in a Hay Festival, I was invited to be in, in conversation with mm. him. And I knew who, who Rafael Chirves was, but I didn't know him that well. And of course, it, you know, being in, in conversation with somebody on that level, you pay a lot of attention um, and prepare. And he was uh, very, he didn't let me go. I mean, it was very, uh, it, I had to be on at all times when I was talking with him. And I kind of, he piqued my interest at that. I said, my goodness, you know, he he doesn't allow you, there's no small talk, there's right. no, I mean, you have right. to go like, straight to it. And um, so I got very interested in, in him and his work and, and was fascinated because he, he's not a Salinger type, but he didn't look for the limelight and he didn't court it, um, he didn't like it very much. So it was very rare when he would actually kind of come out and do an interview or something like that. Um, so, of course, that's all you need <laughs> to become interested in somebody. And we're really pleased that it's published by New Directions, which is such yes. a marvelous publisher. Yes. And it's and it's his second novel that they've published. Is it? Yeah, yes. and it's a beautiful, beautiful edition. Mm -hmm. It's Cremation by Raphael Chirbes, so everyone should run out and get it. Yes, absolutely. But you're also here with a thousand, I love the title, <laughs> a thousand forests in one acorn. Right. And And this is... Um, really, I mean, I can't wait to sort of dive into this one. This is um, an anthology of some of the great Spanish writing uh, of our time, right? Yes. And it's uh, and you write, you also write an introduction mm -hmm. to each story, yes. and you have an introduction to the whole piece. Mm -hmm. So how did this come about? Well, it came about um, because uh, my parents live in a small town in North Carolina called Cashers. And Cashers is one of those towns that they care a lot about their library. And so uh, they were having in the library, they're having, you know, like selling some of their um, books and kind of fundraising. And so I went there to see, you know, some of their, um, what they had. And I found a an anthology that I thought was extraordinary called This Is My Best. 
And uh, the editor went around and asked a number of different writers of the time, and the, it was published in 1942, what they considered their best pages of their entire body of work. And so he asked writers like Faulkner, uh, Steinbeck, um, Dewey, uh, who else, Soroyan, um, Dorothy Parker. Uh, I mean, so many different people that Hemingway was another one, that it was so fascinating to see these writers kind of talking about their own work. And it, it was like a little intimate portrait of of literature in a moment in time, not what the critics said and not what, what the writers, but what the writers thought about their own. Mm -hmm. They were giving a little secret, you know? And um, I thought it was really interesting, and I thought, I would love to do that in Spanish. I'm going to do something like that. So I... so. As I mentioned in the introduction, I take the idea from uh, John Penn and uh, apply it to the kind of end of the 20th century writers, the great writers, because many of them had begun uh, passing. And I thought, you know, it was such a, an important moment in Spanish language history, literary history. I would love to catch them before they pass, no? So... No, so that's the, what I did. the lineup is amazing. And Rafael Chirves is, is one of the writers. Chirves, <laughs> Vargas Llosa, yes. Carlos Fuentes, mm -hmm. Jorge Edwards, Juan Goiti Solo. Mm -hmm. This is really such an important anthology right now. Congratulations uh -huh. Thank on you. it. Thank you and so this much. was published by Open Letter, which, right. mm -hmm. as you know, is one of the great presses mm -hmm. of books in translation. That's right. Yes. Talk about some of the presses here that do translation. Uh, and the importance of supporting those presses. Yes, absolutely. It's absolutely, absolutely important, uh, the work that some of them are doing. I mean, I know Arch Archipelago, for example, is another one of the great kind of indie uh, presses that are doing Coffeehouse Press. And, well yes, they absolutely. They, they care very much for, Europa for the editions. Well. Europa coffee house. I mean, there are a lot of uh, indie presses nowadays who are doing great work in translation. Um, there's also Two Lines Press and, I mean, uh, many. Melville House. Melville House, exactly. So, um, what I think sometimes people don't realize is that this cross-pollinization is really, really important. And I think one of the really interesting things about Rafael Chirves' cremation is that it owes a lot to Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, because the actually the way that he structures this novel has a lot to do with the same way that Faulkner structures As I Lay Dying. It's a kind of a, it's a family saga, and it looks at the question of how family relates, like the power structures between family members around someone who is passing. It's the exact same. And instead of, well, the river, it's the... It's the burning. It's the mm. fire. He chooses a different element. Mm. But it, it's really very much an exploration of, you know, the interpersonal dynamics of the family. Um, now it's just set in another place. Without Faulkner being translated, Chirves's cremation wouldn't exist. So that's what makes translation so absolutely uh, necessary. When you look at Bologna, for example, I remember speaking with Gary Steingart, Gary told me, you know, there's no young writer today in America who can write without having read Bologna. He told me that. And I thought that was such a marvelous thing. You know, um, we 
I mean, I could go on and on with so many examples of like what would Poe be without Baudelaire translating him and making the French read him so much and what would, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because as you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson called him the jingle man, right? It, it took him having to be translated by Baudelaire for us to be able to appreciate our dear Poe, who's like, you know, one of the greatest uh, influences of literature around the world. So that's what translation does. I think one of the things that's really interesting about Chirves's cremation is not just for the readers. Every writer should read it to see what he does, what he's done with Faulkner. Back, he's kind of taken Faulkner and thrown him back to us and said, here, look, this is, this is my innovation. Now what are you guys going to do about it? You know? That's a fascinating way of looking mm -hmm. at translation yes. as well. Because you have, it's, it's sort of split between what you're talking about in terms of the cross-pollination from a writer's perspective. Mm -hmm. And then there is the reader who reads somebody from one of these small villages in Colombia, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the world opens up to that person. That's right. And they can become more empathetic to someone that they knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, translation. Yes, translation. Translation is important. <laughs> we Absolutely. must make sure that we support these these publishers and these authors and these translators. Yes. Absolutely. You talked about, and, and now, you know, what's fascinating about me is that I know from reading about you and from talking to you that you're a girl from Philadelphia mm -hmm. who ended up in Spain <laughs> yes. and ended up as one of the most important publishers, translators, writers, all of that in Spain. How did that happen? I like to say I have a, like a cubist view of, <laughs> of literature because I, I look at it from all different perspectives. Um, well, you know, I always, when I was young, I, uh, I read a lot of the Lost Generation writers. Um, and they sort of gave me a model that I was interested in, you know, before I even knew what I was reading. But the whole idea of literature as an adventure and literature as something like life, dedication, not just like I read on the weekends, but like something that becomes a whole life, you know, dedication, um, appealed to me. And we all know that one of the interesting things about literature is the sense of alienation. And I needed another language somehow because English was too close, you know, it was like having the mask too close to my face. I, I needed to explore, experience the human from somewhere that got me a little bit farther away. So, Do you remember this feeling as a young girl? Or yes. do you remember it, did it, did it blossom in college? When, mm -hmm. when did this No, it started young. It started young. I, I feel think. like your therapist. Right? <laughs> When did it start? How long ago did it start? You know, I say I, I have said this every once in a while. I remember <clears throat> one of my earliest memories was being with my mother and shouting out letters and just, you know, randomly shouting out letters because I think, like, I had this idea there was a code there that if I got the right ones together, it meant something. And I remember the first time I, you know, and I would do this from time to time. And I remember the first time I said E-A-R and she said, yes. And I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> like the world shivered. You know, it was like a moment. And, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, but how does, you know, ear and that's a code and that's means something and I can't, but I can't see it. And it just made like what, like little ontological kind of frisson that never went away. And, and 
I was hooked. <laughs> I didn't even know what a book was yet, and I was hooked. So, um, when did you start studying Spanish? I, when did you settle yeah, on Spanish? So, Spanish so didn't come until much later. Um, I actually studied French, uh, but my first Spanish classes I did horribly in really, like, really horribly. <laughs> I don't think I had the right teacher, um, but somehow it already, you know, it just got in there. It just, it stuck. Um, I'm not from a Hispanic background. I, it, my, nobody in my family speaks Spanish, so it's not something that I grew up with. It wasn't a second language in my home. So, um, but then, uh, you know, like I said, I, I read a lot of The Lost Generation, and I was planning on going to Paris. I mean, you know, do the, the old American in Paris thing. Um, but I happened to decide to spend a little bit of time in Spain before going to Paris. And, and I was uh, just taken. Um, it was a really exciting period of time because Spain was going through the transition. It was unexplored. And we're talking about pre-internet, okay? There was, like, no Wikipedia. There were two television stations. It was such a great time to get lost, oh, it wasn't was, it? And you could. You could <laughs> you get could lost. You could really get lost. And then you know what it was? More than studying Spanish, more than anything else, it was I read Paul Bowles. Wow. Yeah. And and that brought me to Gertrude Stein. It, like, was brought me to Gertrude Stein. Okay, so you could follow uh, an expat literary life without having to be in Paris because, look, at Paul went really far away. And so I actually wrote to Paul, and he wrote back, and he said, come, I'd like to meet you. And so I went to Morocco, and we, that we started uh, kind of a you know, friendship um, with him and with, his, uh, with Rodrigo Rey Rosa, who is uh, the person who inherited everything. And so that was it. That was the, that, that I decided I was staying. So I decided you know, to stay in earlier Spain. Earlier on one of the episodes, and a good friend of mine uh, mentioned uh, that his his entree into the literary world was also through Paul, uh -huh. and that's Dan Halpern. Dan, yes. You know, from Antaeus yes. and all of that. Yes. And Dan just went off to Morocco as well. That's right. And then started Antaeus and all uh -huh. of that. So Paul had quite an interesting influence well, on so, a many, funny thing so many writers. Paul, actually, when I was first seeing him, he said, oh, you have to write to my friend Dan at Antaeus. And I actually did oh, wow. a handwritten letter, which Dan doesn't remember ever receiving, which may never have, have. but uh, that I actually got to know Dan quite well as a, you know, as a publisher in Spain. Um, we shared writers. He would suggest writers to me to publish in um, the Spanish, and I would share writers with him. So when you first went to Spain, did you then, after being there for a while and becoming enamored, was your first entree into literary world there through being a publisher? Mm -hmm. Was that your first role there? No, actually, um, at that time, again, it was pre-internet. So you had, you know, the knowledge that you had in your backpack that you were carrying along right. with you. Um, it was a time when, in Spain, people didn't speak a lot of English. Um, they spoke more French. Um, so I was an asset because I came having read, you know, um, reading, having read a lot of writers. Um, and, you know, I mean, at this time, if you wanted to get the biography of a writer, it was a very hard thing to do. You had, in, in Spain, you had to go to the library and hope there were there was an encyclopedia of some kind of biographies of, of American writers, right? So I uh, I started just you know like I, I, whenever there would be a writer coming to Barcelona, I was there listening to them speak, 
Um, and I started slowly but surely writing. Um, most of the writers that I wrote about for the Vanguardia were mm. um, American writers. So literary journalists. Exactly. I started started. as a literary journalist covering Anglo, um, British American writers who were publishing in Spain and often coming to you know promote. Who were their some books. of the early writers that? came through do you remember uh well that's how i met richard ford for example oh. that was he was oh. one of the writers that i covered but that's how i met susan sontag um let's see uh saul bellow john updike um who else uh paul then, Moles, of course and then you came to publish them later on yes them. exactly exactly and then slowly but surely uh, they they used to put my name since i wasn't on staff but i used to you know contribute uh, I used to get a, a ticket, a, t- a plane ticket, and I would come to the U.S. and I would spend like all summer going here, going there, interviewing this person, interviewing that person, and then come back with my cash because I knew which titles were going to be published throughout the year. And then I would slowly but surely publish the pieces that you know, the interviews that I had done, um, and these big, uh, big travel, you know, journeys, uh, literary journeys across the United States, um, and. So that was uh, that was a little bit how I moved in, um, and they used to write under my name, Servicio Especial, which sounded very you know very secret, special service you know, um, and the the some of the editors kind of figured oh you know maybe she could read my manuscript for me maybe she could and so they they started calling me to read manuscripts. Um, is this good? Is this not good? I could read quicker than most of their readers. And I had a kind of a sense of, you know, where the pe- these manuscripts were placed. And so that's how I started. Um, then I got like a first post in what is now Penguin Random House as an international editor. Would you read a little bit from Cremation for sure. us? So this is um, the, uh, the main, one of the main characters Ruben Bertomeo, who is the real estate mogul whose brother has just passed. And he's having a moment when he is trying not to remember him. This novel talks a lot about power, you know, the the power uh, between uh, brothers and sisters and family and fathers and daughters. And he doesn't want his brother who has just passed, who he loves but at the same time, who he has a very conflicting relationship with, to be in his mind whenever he wants. You know, he wants to try and control, but he can't because he's so, so distraught and uh, realizing how much he loved his brother now that he's passed. So, um, so he begins to remember when his brother is young and in their, the house with the garden. Um, but this shows how Chirbe's... Uh, there's always uh, philosophical questions at the bottom of what he's talking about and how he, his descriptions are absolutely gorgeous and poetic. I must be 18. Matthias a little over 10, or maybe not. No, he hadn't turned 10 yet. He must have been 8 or 9. But he reads well, haltingly, using different levels of stress in the sentences to tickle out meaning, the finest most sublime thing in the world is to reward and punish. He modifies his voice, changes timbre and tone for the dialogue, neutral for the narrator, more affected 
for the different characters. He says, let's go down to the pond and read another chapter. And as soon as he falls into the hammock, he starts reading again. I doze dreamily, think about my things. What am I thinking about? Matias's voice still has a child's pitch. Its musicality drives my thinking. They say the first thing you forget about a dead person is their voice. But if I concentrate, I can still hear his voice when he was a boy. Or maybe I only think I can hear it. I want to be providence, to reward, and to punish. I must have been about 18. I hadn't gone to college yet, or maybe I was already in my first year as an architecture student and back for vacation. The light breeze made the leaves of the lemon tree shiver, the laurel leaves, the eucalyptus, a, bree a breezy commotion of leaves in the back garden. It sounds like the tide, the sea sucking at stones, rubbing the pebbles against each other, sucking at them again. Memories, the fuchsia bougainvillea blossoms, translucent, as if, it made a, as if made of silk paper. The wisteria curling over the garden wall like a spongy blue wave, the fleshy leaves of garden plants, the sun aglow, and the boy who is Matthias reading to the teenage Ruben. The table is set. The maid's voice can be heard from the terrace above, the house invisible behind the vegetation, the two of us hidden in a vegetable labyrinth with the muted crepitation of the breeze and the deep sound of the motor that spurts a jet of cold water to nourish the irrigation pond. It's a world that's mine, alone now, nobody else's. I'm the sole proprietor of those memories. Safe in my refrigerated car, I preserve it. The bluish-gray tinted window increases my feeling of isolation, of being protected. Nobody else remembers the old garden anymore. The voice, how the sun reverberates on the pond's basalt blackness, shimmering like a colossal petrified flower with four curled stone petals, wasps gliding over the water, red dragonflies levitating, the wind rippling its presence across the surface, a few devil's darning needles, green and blue, iridescent, glimmering electric carapaces, their wings moving like fizz in the air. The maid calls. Lunch is ready. Go on now. Time to wash up. Matias, I want those hands smelling of Eno de Pravia soap. If they don't know, there's no desert for you, and no snack later, either. And for your information, there's vanilla ice cream in the freezer, and chocolate sauce in the jicaro bowl. Summer. The table is set. Nobody else remembers this. Only me. And when I'm no longer here to remember, it will no longer exist. Hmm. Valerie, don't stop. <laughs> Thank you. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Everybody that's just the audience here in this room. <laughs> Is clapping. Thank you, Valerie wow. Miles. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being on The Literary Life. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to be here. Thank you for everything you're doing in Books and Books. You thank keep you, everything Valerie. going. Safe travels. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>